Our scripture is Exodus 17, 8 through 16, and Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, Amalek. First of all, Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out, men, and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial and a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisa. For he said, Because of the Lord, because the Lord hath sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Deuteronomy 25. Verses 17 through 19. Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way, when ye were come forth out of Egypt, how he smote thee by the way and smote behind most of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, and thou art faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. A number of centuries in recent times, scholars refused to believe that there was a great empire, Assyria, that had existed in the ancient world. The Bible, of course, spoke extensively of Assyria and made clear what a tremendous empire it was. But the Radical and skeptical historians refused to believe this until, of course, the excavations uncovered Nineveh and thoroughly confirmed scripture at this point. A similar ignorance still prevails with regard to Amalek. According to Numbers 24.20, Amalek, at the time of 
Moses and earlier was described as the first of the nation. A tremendous power, greater than Egypt and greater than any of the existing powers. A very ancient power. Some biblical scholars very wrongfully ascribe the origin of Amalek to the house of Esau. But although one of Esau's grandsons was named Amalek long before this young man's birth, the nation Amalek existed, as Genesis 14.7 makes clear. But it is today a forgotten past. What the first of the nation. In recent years, Velikovsky has identified Amalek with the Hyksos kings, and I think at this point been quite convincing. The Hyksos kings who, according to him, invaded Egypt at the time of Egypt's destruction by the ten plagues against Egypt by God. So that Israel left Egypt and the hosts of Pharaoh were destroyed in the Red Sea and at this point Amalek rushed in, took over Egypt and ruled it for a long time. Our concern is not with the history primarily but with biblical law. And at this point Amalek is important because a judgment is pronounced against Amalek by God, and a decree of judgment is an aspect of law, especially when that decree is included in the legal code. And thus we have in the law of God two legal decisions concerning Amalek, a judgment pronounced against them which makes it a part of the legal code. Therefore, it is important for us to understand the significance of Amalek. Now, several things are apparent in the scriptural references to Amalek. First, in some sense, Amalek was clearly at war with God. According to Psalm 83, verses 5 through 7, we read, For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against thee. In other words, Amalek headed an anti-God conspiracy. God therefore declared that, second, he was also at war with Amalek. And so Samuel declared to Saul, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Again, the book of Samuel refers to God's fierce wrath upon Amalek. So, we have the fact, first, Amalek was at war with God, and second, 
God was at war with Amalek. Third, we have the fact that Israel had been attacked by Amalek and been savagely treated. Fourth, God required Israel to wage war unto death against Amalek. And fifth, this war was to continue from generation to generation. And the remembrance of Amalek was to be blotted out. Now let's examine these points in detail to understand what the problem was. First of all, what was the offense of Amalek against God? As we read the scripture, Genesis or Exodus 17, verse 16, could read. It reads in the King James, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. However, the marginal note makes clear that this can be read in another way. Because the hand of Amalek is upon or against the throne of heaven. Therefore, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. In other words, Amalek, in some sense, was at war with God, had made it a matter of policy to be anti-God with all its being. Therefore, There was a war to death. What was the nature of Amalek's actual offense in this case? The scripture makes abundantly clear that Amalek hated God with a passion. Now the seriousness of Amalek's offense is reflected in the scripture. Rabbi, in the Talmud, Rabbi Joseph or Jose taught the three commandments were given to Israel when they entered the land. One, to appoint a king. Two, to cut off the seed of Amalek. And three, to build themselves the chosen, that is, the temple. And I do not know which of them had priority. An old Talmudic story which goes back to pre-Talmudic tradition declares that Amalek, as it attacked Israel at this point, attacked the stragglers and everyone it captured or killed. They castrated immediately and threw the male organs of generation up towards heaven saying, this is what you like, so take what you have chosen. Now, it is possible that this is the correct reading of Scripture when Scripture reads, How he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee. It could mean, in fact, the verb there, uh, smote the hindmost, could be translated castrated thee. 
it is given in the King James a military interpretation as though it were used to describe military tactics. But the basic, the root meaning there is clearly one that speaks of castration. In other words, Amalek's offense at this point was quite clearly one of perverse violence because of its hatred of God and therefore of God's people. And their hatred of God was the primary reason for this if the old law which goes back centuries, ages before the Talmud. If this be true and everything indicates that it is, it would indicate their savage hatred of God. This savage hatred of God on the part of Amalek persisted. The last reference we have in scripture to any of the house of Amalek is to Haman, the Agagite, who was the prime minister to Ahasuerus, king of Persia. Now, the fact that he was described as the Agagite means that he was of the royal line of Amalek. And it was Haman who issued the decree calling for the total murder on a particular day of all Jews within the Persian Empire. Second, God was clearly at war with Amalek, and this war was to be continued from generation to generation. Now, there's a subtle difference here in the scripture. Israel is told they are to war against Amalek, a particular people, until it is destroyed and its remembrance is blotted out. And this, we can say, has been accomplished. After all, how many of you ever studied Amalek in your history books? A great empire far back in history described as the first of the nation. And yet Egypt, which was not equal to Amalek, is in our history books and Amalek has disappeared. I believe the only study of Amalek ever made is a forgotten book about 200 years or 150 or so years ago in French. And apart from that, nothing. Many, many books on ancient history do not even refer to it. Amalek clearly has been blotted out. Israel's work has been done. And yet God says that from generation to generation, continually in all of history, he will be at war with Amalek. So we are confronted with a double usage. Israel attacks the blot out Amalek, which has been accomplished. But God says in every generation he is at war with Amalek. Now obviously the one passage refers to an actual people who are finished. The other refers to Amalek as a continuing element in history. Men of perverse violence, 
so that in every generation God will be at war with those who spiritually, who by nature are Amalekites. Now we do have perverse violence in every generation. Man is a fallen creature. And yet it is one of the sad facts that man does not face up to this fact. He will not acknowledge what he is. In a very recently published book, which does deal in its entirety with violence, there is a passage which reads as follows. Not a pleasant passage to read, but it is important to read because it indicates something of the modern attitude. I quote, In Africa, war captives are often tortured, killed, or allowed to starve to death. Among the Tachi-speaking peoples, prisoners of war are treated with shocking barbarity. Men, women, and children, mothers with infants on their backs and little children scarcely able to walk are stripped and their backs and, uh, uh, and secured together with cords around the neck in gangs of 10 or 15, each prisoner being additionally secured by having the hands fixed to a heavy block of wood, which has to be carried on the head. I might add this is describing things in the last century before the area was brought into the empire. Thus hampered and so insufficiently fed, they are reduced to mere skeletons. They are driven after the victorious army for month after month, their brutal guards treating them with the greatest cruelty. Wow, should their captors suffer a reverse, they are at once indiscriminately slaughtered to prevent recapture. Ramsayer and Kuhn mention the case of a prisoner, a native of Accra, who was kept in log, that is, secured to the felled trunk of a tree by an, by an iron staple driven over the wrist with insufficient food for four months and who died under this ill treatment. Another time they saw among some prisoners a poor, weak child who, when angrily ordered to stand upright, painfully drew himself upright, showing the sunken frame in which every bone was visible. Most of the prisoners seen on this occasion were mere living skeletons. One boy was so reduced by starvation that his neck was unable to support the weight of his head, which, if he sat, drooped almost to his knees. Another, equally emaciated, coughed as if at the last gasp while a young child was so weak from want of food as to be unable to stand. The Ashantis were much surprised that the missionary should exhibit any emotion at such spectacles, and on one occasion, when they went to give food to some starving children, the guards angrily drove them back. Both the regular army and the levies in Dahomey show an equal callousness to human suffering. Wounded prisoners are denied all assistance. And all prisoners who are not destined to slavery are kept in a condition of semi-starvation that speedily reduces them to mere skeletons. The lower jawbone is much prized as a trophy, and it is very frequently torn from the wounded and living foe. 
the scenes that followed the sack of a fortress in Fiji, going to another area, are too horrible to be described in detail. That neither age nor sex were spared was the least atrocious feature. Nameless mutilations inflicted sometimes on living victims, deeds of mingled cruelty and lust, made self-destruction preferable to capture. With a fatalism that underlies the Melanesian character, many would not attempt to run away, but would bow their heads passively to the club stroke. If any were miserable enough to be taken alive, their fate was awful indeed. Carried back bound to the main village, they were given up to young boys of rank to practice their ingenuity in torture. Or, stunned by a blow, they were laid in heated ovens. And when the heat brought them back to consciousness of pain, their frantic struggles would convulse the spectators with laughter. End of quote. Now, I cite this long passage, which is given in a book uh, very recently published as an illustration of the total error of the modern position, which treats this kind of thing and then because its perspective is evolutionary, says this is a survival of our primitive past. And man is evolving and is in process of evolution to better things. And yet the reality is that these things described are modesty personified when compared to communist torture. That in our modern world, in the streets of our major cities, there are acts of depravity which put to shame very often these cannibals. We are spared these details of the press deliberately. But the modern world is progressively seeing atrocities and horrors that put these people to shame. And with the communists, the use of terror has been refined into an art. And of course, the early communist theorists like Trotsky and Lenin wrote systematic treatises on the use of terror. They proclaimed a universal hatred of man in the name of love. Why? Why this growing rise? Man's basic sin is to be as God. But man is unable to become God. He is always a creature. And when he tries to become God, he finds he cannot create. He may boast of his power to create. And through the centuries, we have had in every society the attempt, through magic, through alchemy, through science, to say we can create life or we can create gold or we can manufacture synthetic life. But man has never been able to deliver on his attempt to be a creator like God. And so he plays in the other direction at being God by destroying. And in his power to destroy, he finds a pseudo-omnipotence in destruction. This, of course, was the whole point of Orwell's book, 1984. Orwell, a socialist, 
who never left his socialism. He had no other faith to go to. When he saw what his faith added up to, died in despair at what he saw. In 1984, his O'Brien, his socialist leader, said, We shall squeeze you empty, and then we shall fill you with ourselves. And O'Brien went on further, and his statement is theologically important, because Orwell saw the meaning of the growing violence in the modern world. Make no mistake about it, violence is on the increase. Next week we shall go into the reasons for it. But to quote O'Brien, this leader of the totalitarian socialist state, power is in inflicting pain and humiliation. Power is in tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. Do you begin to see then what kind of world we are creating? It is the exact opposite of the stupid hedonistic utopians that the law, that the uh, old reformers imagined. A world of fear and treachery and torment, a world of trampling and being trampled upon, a world which will not grow less but more merciless as it refines itself. Progress in our world will be progress toward more pain. The old civilizations claimed that they were founded on love and justice. Ours is founded upon hatred. In our world there will be no emotions except fear and rage, triumph and self-abasement. Everything else we shall destroy, everything. Already we are breaking down the habits of thought which have survived from before the revolution. We have cut the links between child and parent and between man and man, and between man and woman. No one dares trust a wife or a child or a friend any longer, but in the future there will be no wives and no friends. Children will be taken from their mothers at birth as one takes eggs from a hen. The sex instinct will be eradicated. Procreation will be an annual formality like the renewal of a ration card. We shall abolish the orgasm. Our neurologists are at work upon it now. There will be no loyalty except loyalty toward the party. There will be no love except the love of Big Brother. There will be no laughter except the laugh of triumph over a defeated enemy. There will be no art, no literature, no science. When we are omnipotent, we shall have no more need of science. There will be no distinction between beauty and ugliness. There will be no curiosity, no employment of the process of life. All competing pleasures will be destroyed. But always, do not forget this. Always there will be the intoxication of power, constantly increasing and constantly growing suffer. Always at every moment there will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on the enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever.
If this written in 1948, which is 1984 reverse, sounds impossible, remember that the most popular tune of the last decade was one sung by Nancy Sinatra with a very poor voice because of its theme. Wearing high boots, she sang over and over again, I'm going to stomp all over you. It was the idea of the song that made it so popular. It meets, as one commentator after another points out, the basic impulse of our modern age, self-realization by means of total and pervert violence. This is how man is playing God. He cannot create, therefore he will destroy. And he will find this his satisfaction, the pseudo-omnipotence of violence. And for this reason God says that he is at war from generation to generation, in every generation, against Amalek, against the Amalekites of every generation. Therefore, God's enmity to every Amalekite remains. As surely as the first Amalek was blotted out, and in Haman, the last of the known Amalekites, so the Amaleks and Amalekites of the day are under judgment and are to be obliterated. Remember the destiny of Amalek in Haman. Haman purposed to eliminate Mordecai and to enjoy the spectacle of his destruction had the gallows built in his own courtyard so that he and his wives could rejoice in it. And according to Esther 7 verses 9 and 10, Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Third, Israel was attacked by Amalek. Amalek feared not God. Now men cannot strike at God if they be at war with him, but they can strike at the people of God. And so in age after age, when we have an anti-God movement, it is the innocent people of God who are the target of the hostility of these people. Tertullian and other church fathers call attention to the perversity of the Romans. 
And they told the Romans, we are the best citizens you have. We are the ones who are the most law-abiding, who pay the taxes honestly. We are the ones who, when recruited into the army, serve and serve most faithfully. You are destroying your best citizens. And the Romans knew it. But they hated God. So they destroyed the Christians systematically for generations and ultimately destroyed themselves. And for God declares that his covenant people must wage war against the enemies of God because this is a war unto death. No quarter is possible. And therefore, this warfare must continue until the Amalekites of the world are blotted out and the justice of God prevails. Because God's omnipotence is total, this pseudo-omnipotence of man, as he tries to be God, is also total in its vain imagination. This violence of the Amalekites does not mellow. Its goal is the manifestation of sheer violence, of sheer power in total destruction. And therefore, even as Israel was commanded to wage war against Amalek, it was also given the typology of Moses' upraised hand in prayer to God. Amalek is to be destroyed by full-scale battle, a total offensive, with a full reliance on the Lord, who is the only ground of victory. Amalek is all around us today. And only by full reliance upon God and full-scale battle. Can we have victory? Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee as we face Amalek this day. We face him not alone. For Thou, O Lord, from generation to generation art at war with Amalek. Thou hast destroyed the Amalekites of old. And by thy sovereign purpose, Haman was hung on the gallows he prepared for thy servant Mordecai. And we pray, our Father, that in this generation we may see the Amalekites hung from their own gallows, falling into their own net. Thy people, delivered and vindicated, make us strong, our Father, in the war against Amalek, and grant unto us thy victory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. 
So we would say God's mercy exceeded that which we would be capable of, and then his judgment was far more total than we would have ourselves exercised. Yes. Between that and what? I didn't. No. Uh, euthanasia is cutting out the weak or the uh, infirm in terms of physical characteristics, uh, old age and the like. This is strictly forbidden. But in this case, they were commanded to eliminate these people totally. This is not said for any other people. This was said for these particular, the Canaanites. Uh, we are not given any ground for taking life apart from God's work, ever. But we are also told in Scripture that incorrigible criminals are not to be spared. And at this point, you see, we would not have today the Amalekites all around us if we were not, in a sense, subsidizing these people. Yes? This has reference to personal relations and personal feelings. Here you have the enemies of God. You see, there is one thing in the way of personal conduct, in terms of personal matters, another where you deal with basic and absolute moral issues in the relationship of people to God. We are to love our personal enemies, but we are to hate the enemies of God. The distinction is very carefully made in Scripture. Any other questions? Yes. Both. Yes. If a man's deeds are hateful, he is too. It is schizophrenic to say that intent and act are separate. different from, uh, in other words, you and I, every one of us, often do things that are wrong. We are not perfectly sanctified. But when a person's total direction is wrong, we cannot make a distinction between the person and the act. You have to take the totality of the person. So that a man whose total light represents evil must be treated as as one whose inner being is evil. You cannot distinction uh, make a distinction between his actions and his nature. Yes. 
Right. Right. And Paul, Paul made it clear that he was a sinner and that his actions were evil. But it was the grace of God that changed him. Yes. Uh, they can. But uh, we'll come to that point next week because we're going to continue this subject of Amalek and violence, perverse violence. But this doesn't mean that uh, you're going to say, well, maybe uh, this racist and that murderer and that thief are going to be converted, therefore we're not going to enforce the law against them, you see. Uh, you can't do that. We'll go into that greater night next week, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, you have increasingly this kind of talk of exercising omnipotence by controlling totally the birth rate, the death rate, the life of man from start to finish. And the purpose behind it is to play God. Now, I have a book coming out very shortly, as most of you know, entitled The Myth of Overpopulation. And in The Myth of Overpopulation, I point out that the idea of controlling birth and controlling population has been with us since pre-Christian times. We've never had reference to the fact that a real overpopulation, we've never had that problem. It's had reference to the desire of man to control totally his society and his fellow men. This is the real purpose. Yes. We are to look on Negroes and whites who give themselves over to violence as Amalekites. Yes. Their background was for centuries in Africa one of a dedication to violence. Then in this country, as a result of their slavery and their uh, conversion in those conditions, they were for generations, uh, several generations, of good people. Now, the older generation, many of them are very fine, but they are moving today black and white into the tents of Canaan, as Noah's prophecy declared, and into the Amalekite category. All around us, we are surrounded by Amalekites who have a delight in perverse violence. We'll go into that more next week. Yes. Yes. If you deny God, ultimately, you want to play God. And if you want to play God, you cannot play God by creating. So you play God by destroying. Because to be God is to be omnipotent, to have total power. And so you have this lust for power, and you cannot 
exercise it positively, so you exercise it negatively with this pseudo-omnipotence of destruction. And this is the point that Orwell saw, that man today, in his desire to be his own God, was going to exercise progressively more and more power in destruction. So he said the picture of the future is of a boot stamping itself into a human face endlessly. Total power. Yes. Thank you. 
just one brief comment on the monetary situation. Everything points to the fact that we are uh, trying to prevent devaluation and have been dumping gold and have been, uh, in a sense, compelling the cooperation of the Germans in this policy of avoiding devaluation. And it looks as though they may do so successfully. Now, Schultz feels that if this is our policy, it will not last past October. A very significant step was taken uh, just a week ago by the Treasury, which indicates their feeling that demonetization may be the way out, that is, abandoning gold entirely, which, of course, is absurd. It won't work. But the Federal Register had a regulation introduced which would drop the old regulations on the importation of gold coins, so that any U.S. gold coin in Switzerland can now be imported, supposedly, by any person legally. With no problem. The first one ha uh, shipment has been ordered as a test case to see if there is a gimmick in this and whether customs will stop it or block it because heretofore only a handful of treasury licensed dealers could import gold coins and it was difficult to get them in the country. Now, if this test case works out, the double eagles, which are 78.50, could drop uh, from three to five dollars in price, because the middleman, the treasury licensed importers, will be out of the picture. So this is possible within a week or two weeks or three, uh, depending on how long it takes to work out this test case. There could be that drop. On the other hand, there is likely to be a rapid increase because now it will be easier for American buyers to be competitive in the buying of these coins. In the long run, it will raise the price very radically, but temporarily, there could be a drop for a few weeks or days, hard to determine which, if this uh, new regulation is valid. Now, in the long perspective, of course, the present attitude will only raise the price radically. Uh, this one coin dealer called me Tuesday, and in the course of discussing the situation and the utter heedlessness of people and governments to the crisis, he said, last night I saw uh, some captured German World War II films, which were the first ones shown first showing of these films. They were taken by Germans in Berlin four days before Berlin fell. And he said the Russian troops were 15 miles to the east, the American troops 30 miles to the west. The streets were full of rubble and dead bodies. But he said the film, taken four days before the fall of Berlin, showed people going to the Philharmonic concert and to the zoo, believing absolutely the propaganda that was 
published and issued by their radio and their government that the Germans uh, would stop the Soviet army and the American army, that they were on the verge of turning the tide and would have the victory. And everybody believed it. So they were going about business as usual to the Philharmonic and to the zoo with their picnic lunches. And what Mr. Bloomer said at this point, he said, the situation here with respect to the monetary crisis is the same. Change the four days to four years, give or take a few years. And he said, we are doing the same thing that they did then. We believe the propaganda that is given to us that they're going to avert the crisis, that the monetary situation is going to be in hand, that gold is not going to be a problem, that all will go on as usual indefinitely. But he said, in those captured films, you could hear in the distance the rumbling of the Russian gun. And he said, even now, you can hear the rumbling and they appear in the papers of the gold crisis, but they pay no attention, and they'll be caught just as they were then. He said the consequence was in this uh, documentary that when Berlin actually fell four days later, because the people were psychologically unprepared, they became like animals in their reaction. And he said, it will be the same here. They've been unprepared by and large, and when the catastrophe hits them, they will become like animals in their panic. Well, that was the word. We are adjourned.